Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode takes a look back at a film from 1987 that deserved a better reception when it was released, and still deserves a better reception amongst the films written, produced, and or directed by one of the decade's most iconic filmmakers. That filmmaker was John Hughes, and the film is Some Kind of Wonderful. She's beautiful, and everybody's in love with her, and she's going out with me. I just want you to get off the dime and think about your future. She's beautiful, and obviously in the middle of some emotional shootout to consent to date the human tater tot. This is 1987. Did you know that a girl can be whatever she wants to be? I know. My mom's a plumber. I'd recommend you keep your eyes and your mind off my property. Cut it out. Bunch of my own business. Really, it must be a drag to be a slave to the male sex drive. I didn't say anything about sex. Oh, we'll start a book club with her. Anytime somebody from the outside lifts a woman from a quad like Jen's, man, we could all find cause to rejoice. You walk out on me, where are you gonna go? I want to show this girl that I'm as good as anybody else. I know how you feel. You've been in love before. There's a lot of things you don't know about me. He got a shot to be the first guy in his family who didn't have to wash his hands after a day's work. Break his heart and break your face. Do you miss me, Keith? Do you miss not being around me? This isn't the third grade anymore. Are you only 18 years old? Then I'm 19 and I'm 20. When does my life belong to me? When we, as the film-loving community that we are, talk about John Hughes movies of the 1980s, there are three movies that dominate the conversation. The Breakfast Club from 1985, and two from 1986, Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Not that there's anything wrong with talking about them. For the most part, they are enjoyable films that are easy to watch over and over again over the years. However, some kind of wonderful kicks all of their butts at every level. They're better characters, better actors, better conflicts, better resolutions, and a much better soundtrack. But the film some of us love and embrace almost didn't happen, and almost didn't happen the way it did. Our story begins in late 1985. John Hughes has written a screenplay, Pretty in Pink, specifically for his muse, Molly Ringwald. For the seven of you who may not have yet seen or heard of Pretty in Pink, Ringwald plays Andy a high school senior from the wrong side of the tracks who must deal with her own class struggle within the rich suburbs of Chicago when she falls for a preppy boy from school. Andy works at a record store and has a super nerdy friend everyone calls Ducky who dresses weird and acts weirder. Andrew McCarthy plays the preppy boy, Blaine, and John Cryer is Ducky. Although Ringwald really wanted Robert Downey Jr. to play Ducky, they. Ringwald and Downey, would work with each other in 1987 on James Toback's not very romantic, not very comedic, not very dramatic, 
and not very good romantic dramedy, The Pickup Artist. As most of you are probably well aware, as it was filmed, Pretty in Pink would end with Andy going to her prom by herself after being rejected by Blaine and ends up hooking up with Ducky. But when the movie was screened for test audiences, they loved the movie. Until the end. So director Howard Deutsch and actors Ringwald, McCarthy, and Cryer would be brought back for a reshoot where Andy ends up with Blaine after all. Test audiences were cool with the new ending, and the film would get released against Hughes's wishes with that new ending. Hughes and Deutsch would have a falling out over the updated ending, and Hughes would literally rewrite Pretty in Pink over the course of a month, swapping the genders of the two leads, this time making sure that Andy and Ducky would get together. After Pretty in Pink became a surprise box office success, and its soundtrack one of the best-selling albums of the year, Hughes and Deutsch would reconcile and start to work on pre-production on Some Kind of Wonderful. The first version of the screenplay would play more as a broad sex comedy, as a young man from the wrong side of the tracks goes on a disaster of a date with the most popular girl in school. But Hughes and Deutsch would have trouble casting the film. Their first choice for the male lead, at that point named Garth, was Michael J. Fox, at the time one of the biggest stars in Hollywood thanks to his role as Marty McFly in Back to the Future the previous summer, and his continued work on the hit NBC show Family Ties. And while Fox was looking for something fun and frothy and less demanding than the special effects-heavy Robert Zemeckis film to work on during his next summer hiatus from Family Ties, he would say no to the role. And he wouldn't end up making two movies during his break from the TV show that summer. Paul Schrader's musical drama Light of Day and Herbert Ross's fun and frothy The Secret of My Success. Two others who would be seen for the role of Garth were Pretty in Pink's Blaine, Andrew McCarthy, and Pretty in Pink's Ducky, John Cryer, who would tell the reporter years later of a scene in the original screenplay where Garth, while in his gym clothes at school one day, is caught scratching himself, you know, down there, by the object of his affections. But when he tries to take his hand out of his shorts, his watch band gets stuck on the inseam of the shorts, which makes it look like he's doing something very inappropriate to be doing in public at school. In the original screenplay for the movie, the lead female character was named Keith, and has been described by some who've read the original draft of the screenplay as a trans character. Hughes had written the role for Molly Ringwald, knowing she was looking to move past the public image he had a part in shaping, but she would say no, which would cause an irreparable rift in their working relationship that never got put back together. Hughes and Deutsch then went to Mary Stuart Masterson, an up-and-coming young actress who had co-starred in 1985's Kevin Dillon religious comedy Heaven Help Us and 1986's Christopher Walken Sean Penn drama At Close Range. Immediately upon getting cast, Masterson would start taking drum lessons. So when you watch the movie, that's really her playing the drums. As Amanda, the other female lead, Deutsch suggested Leah Thompson, Fox's co-star in Back to the Future, to Hughes, but she also would say no to the role. Thompson just didn't want to play the pretty girl as written because the other role of the drummer girl was far better and was already cast. 
Now, it is said in almost every piece of research I've done for this show, including in the 1987 press kit sent out by Paramount Pictures to critics in newspapers, that Hughes originally wrote the lead male role of Garth specifically for Eric Stoltz, who would end up playing the lead male role of Keith in the final film. But it's odd that Hughes and Deutsch would continue to see other actors for the role. And the stress of not finding the right actor would cause Deutsch to walk off the film. With Deutsch gone, Hughes would hire Martha Coolidge, the director behind Valley Girl and Real Genius, to take over the production. And it would be Coolidge who would make the choice to hire Stoltz. Upon his casting, Stoltz would take up painting lessons to help him get into character, but he never became good enough of a painter to have any of his works featured in the final film. Coolidge would also hire future NYPD Blue star Kim Delaney as Amanda, the prettiest girl in school, and the object of Garth, now Keith's affection, and Kyle MacLachlan, who had starred in David Lynch's ill-fated Dune adaptation in 1984 and had just finished filming Lynch's follow-up movie, a psychosexual drama called Blue Velvet, to play the role of Hardy Jens, the richest kid in school and the guy Amanda dumps at the start of the story that leads to her accepting a date with Garth, now Keith, the literal opposite of her ex. She would also push for John Alcott, who had shot 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining with Stanley Kubrick, to be her cinematographer. And he accepted the job, which he would start on once he finished the Roger Donaldson thriller No Way Out. But Alcott would suffer a heart attack and pass away while on vacation in the south of France just after completing that movie. Jan Kieser, who had shot Alan Rudolph's Choose Me and Tom Holland's Fright Night, would get the job soon thereafter. But along the way, Coolidge started to rework Hughes' screenplay, playing up the class resentment represented between lower-middle-class Keith and the upper-class Hardy, which Hughes didn't necessarily mind. All during his work with Coolidge, he himself had been reworking the screenplay, using the songs he intended to use on the soundtrack as his guiding light. But in the end, the visions Coolidge and Hughes had for the film would diverge too much. With Hughes being both the writer and producer of the film, it would be Coolidge who would be excused from the production, either, depending on who you talk to, four days before the movie was scheduled to begin shooting, or two weeks after shooting began. Either way, it would be the closest John Hughes would come to working with a female filmmaker in the movies he had direct control of as writer and producer. With Paramount giving the producer a couple weeks to get the train back on track, Hughes called his friend Howard Deutsch, asking him to come back to the movie. Deutsch would read Hughes's most recent draft and was excited by the new tone and direction, and he did rejoin the production. He agreed Stoltz and Masterson were a great fit for the newly rechristened Keith and Watts, a subtle Stones in-joke for the music-loving Hughes, but where to find a new Amanda Jones? Deutsch was aware Stoltz was friends with Leah Thompson from when the two played love interests in the Cameron Crowe-written The Wildlife in 1983, and then when Stoltz starred as Marty McFly in Back to the Future in 1984, before being replaced by Michael J. Fox, and asked the actor what he thought about the actress for the role of Amanda. Stoltz thought it would be a great match, 
and hopped onto his motorcycle with a copy of the screenplay and headed directly to the actress's house atop Laurel Canyon to convince her to take the role. Unbeknownst to anyone involved in the production of Some Kind of Wonderful was that Leah Thompson was having a major crisis about her career. Howard the Duck had just opened in theaters the week before, and, to borrow the oft-used metaphor to describe the film's box office performance, laid a massive egg. Thompson was convinced, despite the massive success of Back to the Future just one year earlier, that her career was over. Done. Finito. Adios. Goodbye. So when Stoltz knocked on her door with a copy of the newest draft of the screenplay, she did not need any extra convincing to take the role. Hughes had improved the character, making Amanda a stronger person. But in reality, Thompson would have taken the job regardless. She was that sure she was last month's featured flavor that would never come back. Other actors to get cast in the movie included John Ashton, best known as Sergeant Taggart in the first two Beverly Hills Cop movies, Scott Coffey, who had a small role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Craig Sheffer, who was making his third film for Paramount Pictures in two years, and Elias Kotis, a Canadian actor in only his second movie, who had studied acting under Masterson's father Peter, an actor, writer, and director in his own right, who starred in The Stepford Wives, co-wrote the book for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and directed The Trip to Bountiful, for which Geraldine Page would win her Oscar for Best Actress in 1986. Miss Masterson didn't know that Coteus was a student of her father's until the first time they had met on set. The film would also be the debuts of China Phillips, daughter of the Mamas and the Papas John Phillips and Michelle Phillips, who herself would become more famous as a singer in her own right as part of Wilson Phillips, and Candace Cameron, the younger sister of Growing Pain star Kirk Cameron, who herself would become more famous as one of the stars of Full House. Shooting either resumed or began in Los Angeles on August 11, 1986, the first film in the Hughes canon to completely take place outside of Chicago and its suburbs, in sunny Los Angeles. The school scenes would be shot at San Pedro High School, while Keith, Watts, and Amanda's houses were all within a half-mile walk from each other in nearby Wilmington. Hardy's house is in Hancock Park, though, a good 22 miles to the north, as would be the gas station Keith worked at and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where Keith takes Amanda to show off one of his paintings of her. Further north still is the Hollywood Bowl, where Keith would take Amanda for the next part of their date after the museum. In the end, the story can be boiled down to a single sentence. A tomboy finds her feelings for her best friend run deeper than just friendship when he gets a date with the most popular girl in school. And the popular girl's former boyfriend, unable to let go of her even though he enjoys the company of other young ladies, has a plan to get back at the boy. But that basic breakdown doesn't get into all the nuances that make the film so great. Two friends, a boy and a girl, whose friendship exists on a mutual respect for each other, and not just because they're both from the wrong side of the tracks or because they're both freaks to the rest of their school. A popular girl who isn't exactly what others think of her. A working-class dad who wants the best for his son, 
but also realizes and respects the young adult living under the same roof is his own person and is going to make some really stupid life decisions no matter what the dad says or does. And that's okay. A friend who sees how big a mistake her friend is going to be making by going out with that other girl, but is there for her friend anyway, even if she has developed her own complicated feelings for that friend. The skinhead punk rocker who looks the part but doesn't necessarily act the way you think they should. And then there's the soundtrack. Wonderful new wave pop songs that just flow together so beautifully, mostly from bands and solo artists you've probably never heard of before and would never hear from again. Pete Shelley from The Buzzcocks, Stephen Duffy, the original bassist and lead vocalist for Duran Duran, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Flesh for Lulu. But put together, it's pure 80s musical bliss. And yes, there is one song on the movie's soundtrack that you've all heard before. Right. 
The film would open in 1,082 theaters on February 27, 1987, and would gross $3.5 million in its first three days. That's not a bad opening weekend, although it would be $900,000 less than 16 Candles' opening weekend in 1984, $1.6 million less than The Breakfast Club would open to in 1985, and $2.5 million less than Pretty in Pink had earned in its opening weekend in 1986. And while the adults were continuing to see movies like Platoon and Hoosiers, the kids were packing theaters showing A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which opened to nearly $9 million the same weekend. The film would hold steady in theaters for weeks, only dropping 10% in its second week of release, 16% in week 3, and 27% in week 4. After five weeks in first-run theaters, Some Kind of Wonderful would start making its way to the dollar houses, where it would continue to play for another nine months. But the final gross of $18.55 million would be the fourth lowest grosser of all Hughes-produced movies, higher than only She's Having a Baby, Career Opportunities, and Dutch. The reviews were good, but not great. Roger Ebert would give it a positive three-star review, even going so far as to note that it's not a great movie. It's not about whether the hero will get the girl, he wrote. It's about whether the hero should get the girl. And when was the last time you saw a movie that even knew that could be a question? He would continue. Here we have all the ingredients, I suppose, for another standard John Hughes teenager film. But Hughes always gives his characters the right to be real, and by the end of Some Kind of Wonderful, I felt a lot of empathy for these kids. Janet Maslin of the New York Times would be one of the many critics who saw the film as an improved, recycled version of the Pretty in Pink story. And, as I mentioned in the August edition of our Summer of 1986 series, Leah Thompson and Howard Deutsch would fall in love with each other during the making of the movie even though she was engaged to and living with Dennis Quaid at the time. Thompson would break her engagement off with Quaid shortly after filming ended, and she and Deutsch would start dating shortly thereafter. They would marry in 1989, and they are still happily married to this day. For myself, Some Kind of Wonderful came at just the right time. Like The Breakfast Club, I was directly in that wheelhouse. In 1985, I was a high school senior with few friends who felt like an outsider at his own school. In 1987, I was 19, living back at home after a failed attempt to break into Hollywood, trying to figure out who I was and what I was going to do with my life, and trying to figure out this whole love thing I had heard about forever, but hadn't really gotten the chance to explore yet, wishing for a Watts of my own. It would also serve as a great reminder that the person we show to the world isn't always the person we really are. None of the exceptional actors from Some Kind of Wonderful would become a breakout star the way that Molly Ringwald or Anthony Michael Hall did after Sixteen Candles and The Breakfast Club. Masterson, Sheffer, Stoltz, and Thompson have had steady, solid careers in movies and on television. Elias Coteus has worked with some of the best filmmakers around, including Francis Ford Coppola, David Cronenberg, David Fincher, twice, Terrence Malick, and Martin Scorsese, and he starred in several films with the great Canadian director, Adam Agoyan. Howard Deutsch, or as he likes to be credited now, 
Howie Deutsch, would direct several sequels to other people's movies, including Grumpier Old Men and The Odd Couple 2, both with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, before finding steady work on television over the past 20 years. And John Hughes, who we covered during our very first official episode back in 2019, would become the king of Hollywood during 1990s with a string of family-friendly movies, including the Home Alone movies, the Beethoven movies, Dennis the Menace, Baby's Day Out, and two remakes for Disney, 101 Dalmatians and Flubber, before retiring from movies and withdrawing from public life in 2001. He passed away from a sudden heart attack while visiting his son and newborn grandchild in New York City in 2009. In March 2021, you can stream Some Kind of Wonderful through your Amazon Prime, DirecTV, Epix, or Hulu subscriptions. You can also rent it for $2.99 or buy it for $9.99 from practically every streaming service out there. If you've never seen it before, or it's been years since you've last seen it, you should give it a chance. It's worth it. Thank you for listening. We will talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast is a presentation of idiosyncratic entertainment, researched, written, hosted, and edited by Edward Havens. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs>